Hi, this is Susan Burton. I'm the Director of Grassroots Advocacy for the National Association of Community Health Center. Today we have with us Steve Carey, the Chief Strategy Officer for NAC also, and looking forward to this conversation specifically focused on community health centers and what we can expect, what we need to do now the election is done and our attention is turning back toward all the things that we need Congress to work with us on. So Steve, as we think about post-election, we know that most of the decisions except for the Senate seats in Georgia are settling. We want to get to what suggestions you have for us. But first, I think it would be helpful for us to start talking about the different streams of funding for community health centers. I think sometimes people think it's it's kind of all in one bucket, and we know that it's not. And so would you mind giving us an overview of that? Sure, Susan. First of all, thank you for uh, what everybody does. Uh, we couldn't be here without you. Very generally, Susan, we've got just a handful of, of different funds. For example, the 330 Fund, Medicaid, Medicare, a workforce fund. We also get funding from private insurance and so forth, but those are the, the, the real main buckets. And the 330 Fund is both a mandatory fund as well as a discretionary. Let me explain the difference. Mandatory is kind of a longer-term plan. It's an authorization for funding without Congress having to really do anything until that authorization expires. The discretionary fund is something that has to pass every year. As we all know, we are now living under a continuing resolution, a CR, and that is because Congress didn't pass any of the appropriations bills before the new fiscal year began on October 1. We are currently living in the school year 21 appropriations budget year. But again, none of the 12 appropriations bills have been passed into law. So our funding, our mandatory and discretionary funding has been extended to December 11th. So that is our target right now. And it is uh, all hands on deck to see if we can get Congress to pass mandatory funding four or five years at higher levels, in addition to the fiscal year 21 funding through September 30. I know that that's a lot of numbers and it's very confusing, but the one thing I want everybody to pay attention to is December 11. We need to do everything we can to pass that mandatory funding. Now, we do get funding for workforce initiatives, but it's a smaller account. It's the teaching health centers. It's about $26.5 million. And it allows us to have somewhat of a creative approach to providing our own doctors to train. And the National Health Service Corps should be in line with the way that we provide care. So even if after doctors, caregivers leave the health center movement, they will go back into some other practice and know what they've learned through our program. So it's a very unique and critical a program for healthcare across the country. Well, one of the things, Steve, that I think you bring up that's really important, especially right now, is we see the inequities in healthcare and inequities in terms of who's being impacted by COVID is that the training that physicians receive and providers receive, nurses, through those workforce programs helps people understand the uniqueness of the conditions that patients in our communities are impacted by. So access to transportation, 
translation services, the having to make the decision between whether or not you're going to spend your money on medication or food, right? There are lots of things that health center patients wrestle with and have to navigate that unless you're serving the community and have been trained to understand the complexities of the health issues and all of the other social determinants of health, you wouldn't know that. And so I think that's why health centers are able to be so innovative is that our practitioners and providers really do know how communities are being impacted and why. So you talk about December 11th being a really important date. What happens if that funding isn't passed? Well, we don't know the exact impact. We think that there's a little bit of a lag and there will be funding that will continue to float, but just we just don't know at what rate and until when. Right now, the Bureau of Primary Health Care has to do that number crunching, and when they produce that, we'll have a better idea. But again, I think that it extends to a certain amount of time, and just anecdotally, we know that through the Bureau and other HHS officials, if it's not fixed immediately, then it could go just a few weeks until it's a catastrophic stop. But the problem with that, Susan, and you and I have talked about this, that is not fair to the chief medical officer who doesn't know whether or not they're going to get paid, or the CEO who doesn't know if they'll be able to make payroll, or the CFO on whether or not they can buy that equipment, invest that critical infrastructure or that equipment if they don't know that this funding is going to be extended. And that is the struggle that we've had for the past several years. Look, we enjoy tremendous support from Congress and previous administrations. This is not a Republican or a Democratic program. However, we are kind of under that, that carrot and stick. We are used as an incentive for other lawmakers to pass other bills. Our fund is so popular that we are added as an incentive to pass other measures. And to me, I get that game, but it is that. It's a game and it's unfair, especially when we are coming through on everything Congress has wanted us to deal with. General primary care, hypertension, diabetes, AIDS. We're now start, uh, caring for more veterans than we have before, so they don't have to drive two hours for care twice a week. And our reward is to have this big unknown as to whether or not we'll get extended. I think it's unfair and it's wrong. So, Steve, what's, you know what you're talking about, and I think a lot of people would understand that health centers are small businesses. They don't have the long-term support in terms of buildings the way the federal government does, for example, like the FBI has a building that exists. And so there's no question that the rent's going to be paid, that mortgage is going to be paid. But for health centers, there is that question, right? There are all the bills that you would expect of a small business exist for health centers as well. And this is a time right now where our health centers, we know that we are in medically underserved communities across the country. COVID rates are rising dramatically and our folks are on the front lines. So then we may not see them on the news in the emergency rooms, but we know that our patients are often the essential workers that don't have access to healthcare. And we know that our providers are the only ones in many communities that are able to care for people, help alleviate fears, help them learn how to protect themselves if they do have to go into work. What is it that health center advocates need to do to break through for folks to understand the impact that this has on our communities? Susan, you said a lot that I would like to address, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get them in order, but I'll get to that answer in a moment. But I wanted to mention something. We are living in this crisis, and the worst is not behind us. We have to be hopeful that with this tragedy, there is a silver lining. And it is my hope that the public and lawmakers will realize that our very patients are the ones that pick and process 
our food. They deliver food. They deliver goods. They keep the economy going. They are sometimes the forgotten, and it's tragic. Those are our patients. Those are our 30 million patients. They keep the economy going. So it's our hope that lawmakers in the future will pay closer attention to that. That's the only benefit of this because there's been such tremendous pain ever since the COVID crisis really hit hard in March. I wanted to mention that because it's not just that our, our caregivers are on the front line, our patients are on the front line. Getting back to your question about what can they do, they need to be relentless. And there's a short-term need and then there's a long-term concern of mine. And it's one that I've shared in every speech that I've given every conference I've been in attendance, and I've said it to you and to my colleagues ad nauseum. At the end of the day, the pie, the federal pie is shrinking. There are tremendous causes out there, very important, none as effective as we are certainly in primary care, because again, we keep people healthy. We serve as that, those shock absorbers to keep patients out of hospitals across the country. So what does that mean? We need all hands on deck. Having worked on the House side and the Senate side as a legislative director, I've seen effective and ineffective advocacy efforts. And I would say at the end of the day, it's those who persist who end up winning. Now, there's a fine line. There's a difference between being persistent and being a pest. And that involves good timing and the right relationships. I believe we have the right relationships. I believe we have the right evidence to prove our effectiveness. We just have to make sure that we keep track of the timing of our interaction. And Steve, I think the other thing that you're talking about that it's really important is the relationships piece. And I think that one of the things that in terms of timing, in terms of being persistent is encouraging advocates to get to know the staff in the district offices and the staff and the offices on Capitol Hill. I know that sometimes people are more interested in coming to Capitol Hill and getting to know those folks because they're right here where policy is being made without remembering that district staff have a lot of sway in terms of what members are thinking about because of what's happening on the ground. What are the kinds of things that you would recommend for people no matter if their member's been reelected or you know they may have a member who's retiring and so is not going to be back next year so how would you encourage people to focus their time and energy on those relationships right now when these decisions are being made? Susan, it's a great question, and there is no one answer. This is a very human process, and people think differently. They are inspired by different things. They are on different calendars. Uh, they are driven and motivated for different reasons. So there is no magic bullet. There is no template for this other than persistence. So again, you've raised a few issues, so let me take them in various orders. First of all, you're absolutely right. I know that there's great interest in reaching out to the policymakers in D.C., as you should. That is why they came to D.C. They wanted to get involved in policy. But I can tell you firsthand, one of our biggest champions in the Senate side, they prefer for their constituents to go through their district office because the district office likes to keep a pulse of what's going on in that part of the state. And it is through that staffer that will then convey the policy needs of that organization or those individuals to the policy staff in DC. So it really just depends on how that office is set up. And that is done by picking up the phone and asking the question, who's your legislative director? Who's your health LA? How would this member of Congress's 
flow of communications proceed? How would you like me to pass on information and so forth? And it's a constant process. I think you know just as well as I do, Susan, there's a steady stream of congressional staff turnover. That takes up a lot of our time. It's a constant process. I could go to one member of Congress and talk to their health LA about something that we need and then only to find a month later or a year later that we have to re-educate that office. If I were to make a suggestion, I would ask you to consider staying in touch with your district offices. Don't take away the importance of re-election. Lawmakers are elected for a reason. They'd like to stay in. And that means that they have to have very keen, very in-tune staff back home. So I would ask if you had a moment to reach out to somebody, stick with the district office. I think that that's a really important reminder, especially because the district staff are more likely to be able to travel, even have a conversation socially distanced outside your health center to see the kind of testing you're doing or how you're doing drive-through vaccinations, drive-through dental. I think there are lots of ways that the district staff are more accessible and can experience your story firsthand. I would invite them for tours once COVID is over. And even if you can do an event safely, show them what you're doing, whether, again, it's a drive-through test. And then when we do have the vaccine, show them how that works. Those of you who are in the movement and maybe belong to Kiwanis, or Lions, or Rotary, ask them through that organization. Have them come in and talk. You know, when I was a consultant before I came on board, we used to set up a number of congressional tours, and I will tell you that I pulled them aside afterward, and they enjoyed it very much, and they had a perspective they couldn't get through a committee hearing or a CRS report. So thank you for emphasizing that. Yeah, I think the stories are really important. And one of the challenges right now is figuring out how to get those told when there's so many different stories being told. I think also as we talk about small businesses, my hope is that as advocates, you would be reaching out to other leaders in the community to talk about how important community health centers are so that you could also get them to advocate for you. I know that when Steve says all hands on deck, he really means that. And we know that there are lots of folks who are tired. They've been working long hours. They're caring for families, trying to balance all kinds of challenges in the midst of a really scary time. And so we also need to invite people who haven't advocated for health centers in the past before, but know how important we are to the community. So what are the small businesses that depend on community health centers? Is there a restaurant nearby where staff go and take out food? That's a restaurant that cares about the health center being open and staying open because it generates that economic activity in the community. Want to make sure that they are also stepping up and speaking up for health centers. So, Steve, I guess the last question for today, when you think about where we are, what is the outlook for the next two years? What do people need to be prepared for? I'm actually optimistic about our prospects because of, again, the goodwill that we've created through the care that's been provided by the 250,000 employees in this movement. Now, granted, certain members of Congress said that now's the time to become more fiscally responsible. And that, of course, means watch out for the spending. So we do have to be careful about that. Something that Tom Van Coverden and I have continued to press over time is to see if we could get Congress to employ a dynamic scoring method of evaluating the effectiveness of our program. Dynamic scoring allows lawmakers to look at the long-term benefits of our programs to show spending for our programs actually lowers overall federal spending. So that's something that we are working on. Stay tuned. 
The second thing is, as we continue to work with the Trump administration, we did work with the Biden platforms and are encouraged by their promise to provide the doubling of investment for the community health center movement. As we speak, I'm working with our colleagues throughout NAC to determine what do those out-year needs look like? What does that doubling of the investment look like? Is it infrastructure, workforce, enhanced care, new programs, and so forth? The answer is yes, 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 and yes. It's just to what extent? And so we've got to do some significant number crunching. That's another positive. And then finally, I think that the fact that we have this cliff fix that we need to resolve, there's no more excusing it. They've already extended us a few times with this new administration and a new Congress. Granted, there are members who we do have to educate. I'm encouraged that they'll hear our call. And I know that everybody who's listening to this and your colleagues have done an amazing job advocating for us during the COVID crisis, which is why, for example, the Community Health Center Emergency Fund was included in the House and Senate version of the current COVID bill being debated. And that's a $7.6 billion fund in the House side. Well, that was in the Senate as well. The fact that they were both in there means that they're paying attention to us. I do not know of any other program that got the same treatment. That's a positive. Even if we don't get that 7.6, it means we're moving. It really does speak volumes for the work that community health centers are doing every day and the appreciation that patients and constituents have in local communities. And so I think that that point you made, Steve, as tired as people are about having to go back to the Hill, go back to Congress so many times to get funding because we are being considered already for these, that that means that they know who we are. It's just a matter of reminding them how important the funding is and, to, and sharing the stories explicitly with them. So there are a couple of things, I think, for next steps. One is I would love for us to think about and maybe to do another podcast about the way that each branch of government comes into play with community health center funding and the way community health center operations work, as well as the difference in terms of state and federal in terms of how those decisions at the state and federal levels impact us in terms of Medicaid, for example, and telehealth. Well, I think you're right. I think an appreciation for the budget process and the calendar is critical. It's actually not as confusing as people think. It's about a calendar. It's about a process. It's about a need. And it's different accounting for sure. But it really only takes a couple of hours of doing a little bit of reading, and I would be happy to do another podcast to explain a little bit about the calendar. It's the calendar that throws people off more than anything, and here's why. Right now, they're still spending down fiscal year $20. We haven't passed fiscal year 21. They're crunching numbers at the White House now for fiscal year 22, and the agencies right now are crunching numbers for fiscal year 23. That sounds confusing, but if you think about the enormity of the federal budget, that's how it has to be. And if I can figure it out, trust me, you guys can. Well, and Steve, I think that, that we need another uh, conjunction, junction, what's your function, right? <laughs> Just a bill. The school, old schoolhouse rock. Don't make me sing. Uh, <laughs> we we'll won't. lose a lot of listeners, but I'd be happy to do it. Um, so the things that people can do. No matter the request, the story is the same. If you're listening to this, you've got a community health center story. 
or you have a neighbor who does, you have a family member who does. And so we hope that you will take the opportunity to tell your story to your member of Congress, because no matter where they are in the process of determining which annual funding or which spending bill, funding is the key ask for us right now. And so I'd encourage you, if you don't know who the district staff are, to reach out to your district staff to find out when you could set up a time to talk with them. We'd encourage you to do that just to build the relationship. The relationship is essential. And the more they get to know you and the more that you feel connected to them, the more they're likely to respond to you. So keeping that relationship positive is really important, even when you're frustrated. It's okay for them to know, like Steve said, there's a difference between being persistent and pesky. And so part of the persistence is making sure people know how much you appreciate what they're doing. And if they're not doing enough to make sure they know that as well, but in a way that is really talks about the urgency you're experiencing and feeling related to funding and not so much a criticism of them because that can be taken a way that's not particularly productive or helpful. So we will continue to offer insights and examples to health center funding, but know that it is a long haul. There is a sense of urgency around the country for what's happened because of COVID, and we already had that within the health center movement. But because of advocates, because of the work that providers are doing on the front lines, because of the board members who are governing, 51% community board members governing community health centers, we have innovative, quality, affordable care that 30 million patients have access to. And we know that number is growing with the number of people who've lost their employer-based health insurance. So we would ask that you remember that your stories are what have pushed the health center movement forward for the last 50 years. And we need you to continue speaking up and sharing that. Steve, I want to thank you for being with us today. I look forward to you coming back another time. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. You all are the best.